is the U.S. engaged in a Cold War with China? And if so, what's the likely outcome of the conflict? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There's no question that the trading relationship between the U.S. and China has deteriorated over the last several years. Now, however, the trade war threatens to become a new Cold War, covering a far broader range of issues between the two superpowers. On this episode, we're going to assess the nature of that growing conflict, consider whether it's fair to call it a war, and discuss what the outcome might look like. I'm joined by Alexander Koff and Ed Wilson two partners from the law firm of Venable LLP, which has issued a new client alert about how diplomatic tensions between the countries, coupled with the impact of COVID-19, is affecting businesses. There's plenty at stake. The value of U.S. exports from China was nearly $558 billion in 2018. So how much of that trade is threatened, and will it result in American importers and exporters shifting their focus to other countries in years to come? Here is my conversation with Alexander Koff and Ed Wilson. Alex Koff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And Ed Wilson, welcome as well. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, in a recent client alert on the Venable site, you quote the Washington Post as quoting China's foreign minister as claiming that the U.S. president and secretary of state, quote, are taking China-U.S. relations hostage and pushing our two countries to the brink of a new Cold War. What is he talking about? What are some of the elements that might constitute that and might put us in danger of reaching that point? Alex, you want to respond to that? Thanks, Bob. What we did, and this was published in early June, June 1st, we looked at a number of different actions by the current administration and Congress to highlight what was happening between China and the increased tensions between China and the United States. We identified a number. We walked through them in the alert, and we can walk through them with you here to try and identify whether or not we actually are in a Cold War. And just to also highlight, about seven days after our article on June 7th, In the Wall Street Journal, Mike Gallagher, who is a Republican representing Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District, actually came out with an opinion, and his commentary said with a byline, yes, America is in a Cold War with China. So I I think that there are a lot of people are talking about this. I think relations are certainly strained, but we're happy to walk through why we suspect there's been uh, significant tensions. More than just on the brink of, it sounds like some believe we're already there. But, but let's take some of the main points here. And, and Ed, if you want to jump in, or Alex, whoever wants to take this. The first, the obvious one, and the original sign and the, of tension, of course, was the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China. Where are we now? And is that a Cold War itself? Is that a, a warmer war? Because uh, that's been raging for a while. What's the situation there? The trade war here is really focused on two things. It's focused on stopping the Chinese from taking U.S. technology and all the other things flow from that. 
in large regard. There are a couple of, of exceptions, but in large manner. And the flip side of that is the, this current administration's desire to increase manufacturing in the U.S. Achieving a U.S. goal of stopping the theft and use of U.S. technology to harm U.S. industries while building up U.S. manufacturing really serves both purposes. And from that flow a lot of other things, not just in the U.S., but also around the world. Alex? Just to give uh, a little bit more flavor to that, the Section 301 action involving China, which is called the trade war, started in March 2018 when the U.S. trade representative called USTR issued a report that found that China was actively seeking to acquire U.S. technologies through unreasonable discriminatory practices. And that's what Ed was alluding to about the theft of intellectual property. The resulting Section 301 investigation really hit additional duties on roughly all U.S.-China trade. That's about $550 billion. It came in in four tranches. The first was a $34 billion list one. Uh, The second on list two was $16 billion. On list three, there was uh, $200 billion that was imposed. And list four was broken into 4A and 4B. The total is for $300 billion. And list 4A has been implemented and is in place right now, but 4B has been suspended pending. And so the United States and China have signed a phase one trade deal regarding this particular pressure. If you have a little bit more time, can I go into a little bit more detail on the trade war? Because it's really sure. something that's yeah. focused in, focus. on the trade deal. It's a little bit more complicated than to say that it's all negative, right? Because the phase one deal has, even in some of the, the reports that are coming out now in, on June 14th, there was a report that came out, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, calling China a bright spot believe it or not, for the U.S. in a gloomy trade picture. In that issue, they looked at U.S.-China trade and noting that although it well, it's, it's well below the record $61.4 billion that was set in October 2018, that trade between, between both China and the United States really started to come back at $39.7 billion in April of 2020. That's up 43% from the month before. And that's enough to, once again, surpass trade between the United States and Mexico, which are real traditional strong trade partners. On top of that, there is a bright spot for some agricultural producers in the United States. U.S. farmers really did feel the brunt of the trade war when China retaliated against the U.S. They scaled back purchases on soybeans, corn, and other farm products. But recently, China has boosted purchases of crops. And here I'm thinking about corn, wheat, and soybeans. And sometimes these levels are higher than before the trade war. And I think even if you're looking at soybeans, in the five weeks through June 4th, China purchased about two-thirds of all gross sales of U.S. soybeans. That's a bright spot. But really, the the trade war has had a huge negative impact, uh, I think, is, is what businesses have felt. And it's really been disruptive for your purposes to U.S. supply chains and also supply chains throughout the world. The New York Times came out with an article June 15th asking whether or not they're going to break the China habit. They focused on three industries in three separate countries. They looked at lobsters from Australia, they looked at lights from Germany, and they looked at toilets from Japan. And given the breadth and size of the Chinese market, they were looking at how difficult it was to shift productions elsewhere. Not only because you have an integrated supply chain, which are producing in that location, but because it's such a strong market for those particular products. At the same time, the, U- the U.S., and maybe this is part of the whole thing, is apparently been taking a number of punitive measures 
against China, or at least proposing punitive measures in the form of restrictions on Chinese investment in the U.S., going after Huawei operations and expanding export controls on so-called dual-use items, things like that that you know, kind of like, I don't know if you consider those side issues or part of the actual middle of the conflict. So what what's going on there? Is that part of the picture as well? Or is that kind of a side event? And how much are those actions expected to anger China and get us further into conflict? What Alex is pointing toward is that the United States is being more sophisticated than most people give the current administration credit for. First is mm-hmm. the president has now come back and is using the China trade to help farmers. The return of soybeans is a great example of it. This time last year, soybeans were stored under blue tarps all over the Midwest. Now we're seeing a very high flow back, but there's no movement from the U.S. In fact, there's an increased restriction on technology investment in the U.S. That's the big change in the law in 2018, which really started focusing on where could people buy real estate? to make sure it wasn't close to U.S. installations, and it was no more just ownership that was restricted, but it's also investment in technology companies. Anything that gives a foreigner outside of certain countries access to U.S. technology is now subject to scrutiny by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, part of the U.S. Treasury. Out of that flows the restrictions on Huawei, the restrictions on dual use, So I I think what Alex is pointing toward is more of a sophisticated view than most people give this administration, but at the same time saying for non-technology matters, we can engage in trade. On technology matters and investment in the U.S., we want to be very careful. And that's being picked up by other countries as well. One of the issues in the supply chain world that we're concerned about is if these issues continue to be picked up by other countries, the restrictions on investment. It's not just the U.S.-China supply chain that will be impacted, but it will be a multidimensional change in how goods and services move around the world. I think that's a smart insight, Ed. And Bob, I'd add some context and some flavor by going back to the beginning of the Trump administration. In his inaugural address, the president keyed off on what has now, I think, been termed an America first international economic policy. And he talked about how every decision on trade, on taxes and immigration, on foreign affairs is really going to be made to benefit American workers, and American families. And in his first joint address to Congress in February 2017, the president stated that he has this simple but crucial mandate to put American citizens first. And it's really this focus on America first of looking inward that carried through his remarks. And it was also emphasized in his first trade policy agenda that the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative released very shortly after his joint address to Congress. What we're seeing now, three years later, with the benefit of hindsight, and as we identified in that client alert, we were able to say, what has this administration and also the Congress done to really focus and look at this inward-first policy vis-a-vis China and, and really focusing on China that has everybody talking about a new Cold War? You have that Section 301 investigation, You have the CFIUS restricting Chinese investment in the United States that we talked about. You have the Huawei operations that you had mentioned, although as we're talking now in mid-June, the United States has backed off that slightly to the extent on 5G, primarily to Ed's point, because U.S. technology companies uh, don't want to be left out of that discussion. Yeah, 
we weren't getting international support for that position either. Not every country was willing to go along with that. Well, the United States also wielded export controls as a way to try and garner U.S. language and, and U.S. pressure to try and ensure that people would go along with that because the United States, through its dual use and its approach to export controls against Huawei and other, other Chinese entities, have really focused also on the semiconductor industry. And some of those rules are still in place. You have some federal communications and FCC-related issues. In the May 2020 speech by Secretary Pompeo regarding Hong Kong, there's been a lot of changes from the United States side. So what I hear the two of you saying is that these measures that the United States is taking against China aren't just negotiating tools. I mean, a cynic might have observed that they're just ways to get China to come into line on a number of issues, like take tariffs, for instance. You impose a tariff... And then you take it away. It's a temporary thing. But it seems like you're saying that some of these restrictions on Chinese investments and some of these targeting of Chinese technology and with an eye toward protecting U.S. technology, these could be or maybe are permanent measures, permanent restrictions that really reflect U.S. concerns over tech transfer? Is that what we're talking about? This is Ed speaking, and I think you're right. I think you're seeing things that are going to relax only in the longer run when other agreements are reached with China. This president's made it very clear that he wants the U.S. to be the manufacturer and remain the fountain of technology and technology innovation. And to do that, he has to protect U.S. intellectual property. To do that, in turn, requires long-term serious measures, restricting investment, looking at who can own things in the U.S., how can things be shipped out of the U.S., one of the great focuses that has not been talked about much, but is quite important, is the technology transfer outgoing by getting into a U.S. company and just sending the stuff abroad or coming to view it under the guise of doing a joint venture. Those issues are very critical to this administration, and they will remain that. So, and I think they'll remain past this administration, primarily because they're not just economic issues, they're national security issues. And they've been long simmering, too, for many years, and they haven't been addressed by anyone until now, it seems. But does all of this mean, do you really see a long-term serious pivot by the United States and private manufacturing the like away from China? Because you know, they have their reasons other than this for getting out of China, because wage costs are going up and the length of supply chains causes more risk. Do you think that all of this adds up to less of a dependence of the United States on China as a manufacturing and sourcing base in the long run? Let me try and key off of what Ed was saying before. This is Alex. I do think Ed is correct, and I think that your question hits on an important point. To what extent will these measures last beyond the past four years into the next four years, regardless of whether you have a Democratic or Republican administration, and will they be permanent? I mean, certainly the Section 301 measures can be removed very quickly, but I think the long-term supply chain impacts of having U.S. companies shift manufacturing to neighboring Southeast Asian markets or even returning production to the United States, uh, that's a process that becomes much harder to change. Once that train is in motion, it makes it very difficult to reshore manufacturing back into China. Let's pause there a second and let's look at the COVID-19 example. On Saturday in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article that said 1,300 Chinese companies had used the same fictitious company and the same fictitious address as their U.S. offices. We've had the, the number of COVID-19 personal protective equipment cases coming out of China where the material is not up to standards, is continuing to push U.S. 
manufacturers away from trusting China. And they're going to try, particularly in the pharmaceutical world, I think, to source closer to home. Given the enormous fights we've had over who gets ventilators, who gets PPE, who gets various medicines, there's an undercurrent flowing out of the COVID-19 stuff. And this is something Alex was really good at bringing into the, the article we did. It said, let's look at the ramifications of this. Now, I think other administrations, by the way, have tried and have had some success in changing the technology transfer issues. This president has certainly been very vocal about it. But it is some that flows right out of the experience that people are having. Let's take the, the man, the uh, Patriot flew back a plane full of PPE to great fanfare. An awful lot of that PPE failed to meet any U.S. standards from either NIOSH or the CDC. The implications of that are changing. And as Alice said, once you start that change, that's like turning an aircraft carrier. The momentum of it is enormous. Alex, comment on that? Yeah, no, I agree with a number of the companies that I've worked with and from talking with colleagues who are also working with companies who are trying to address, at least from the trade war, Section 301 measures, one way to avoid the imposition of the additional duties is to have a change in country of origin. And by changing country of origin, people have taken a, a very hard look at what manufacturing operations can be moved from China, if at all. It's a multi-year process. And as that occurs, like you said, Ed, it's turning an aircraft carrier. It's a significant amount of time and investment. And once people have made that change, it's very hard to go back. They've made the change for protection of intellectual property rights. They've made the change for lower wages on the manufacturing line. Oftentimes, China has done a very good job at making sure that if you have one enterprise or one industry, not only is that industry serviced with top-of-the-line manufacturing, but you also have easy delivery to market. You have add-on industries that go along with that particular product line. But as there's been a significant amount of pressure placed by the United States and other countries to move from China to third country markets, Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, uh, wherever it may be, that change is really hard to go back. Some of the goods that are coming to the United States that are manufactured in China they're changing the, the U.S. destined lines from China to other locations, but they may still be producing in China to go to other third country markets, but sometimes they're getting out altogether or reshoring or onshoring where they can in the United States altogether. Well, for a, a final statement, just to come back, to circle back to how we began this conversation, this interesting idea that when we first talk about, is there a new Cold War? That seems to elicit feelings of dread and negativity, but what you folks are telling us now is that there's certainly some positive aspects to it, that it could cause an actual change in uh, patterns that needed to be made all along. So is that, in fact, what we're talking about, looking on the bright side of a, of a Cold War and, and getting some advantages out of it? I'm not happy with the way this Cold War started. I think the cost to the U.S. was too high at the beginning. I think it could have been done in a, a more subtle but as effective way. It didn't hurt farmers and a whole bunch of other sectors of our economy so hard. But I do see where the president's going. And he felt he had to get the animal's attention, so he hit it with a two-by-four. When you do that, the animal kicks, and some of our own industries got hit with that. But I do see where he's going, and it, it is causing a change in how we look at our own manufacturing base how we look at exporting our agricultural products, and how we look at developing our own technology. The ramifications of this are going to play out over a long period of time. 
and there are going to be other things that come in, such as already happened. What's happened in Hong Kong? What will continue to happen with the Hong Kong? What will happen with the next pandemic? How do we play this one out? What is the, the impact on the relationships of, of what the president said about China influencing WHO? There are a lot of things that we haven't gotten to and we haven't yet had enough time to see. But over the coming years, we most certainly will. Alex, a closing observation? I don't mean to overstate the positives here because I agree with Ed. I'm quite concerned about the pressures and the focus on China. I'm also concerned geopolitically with other U.S. trading partners and other U.S. adversaries, traditional adversaries. I do think, though, that there is a unified, both Republican and Democratic, concern about China with intellectual property. And certainly this administration is taking steps towards that. But I think some of these impacts are going to be here for a long time. In terms of where China is as comparison to some other economies, I think that both the World Bank and the IMF have reported that China may be the only one, if not one of a few countries, to see economic growth in 2020. The U.S. economy is expected to contract by about 6%, the Eurozone by 7.5%. And with that, I think people are also understandably concerned. I do think that there were other levers to hit and to pull, but this is where we are today. And the existing continuance of the trade war, it seems that the trade war, everything that's being promoted and performed from the administration side is meant to keep additional leverage on China to really try and Mm -hmm. push them forward. The phase one deal was negotiated, but the phase two deal, which deals with structural changes in China, it's going to be very, very difficult to achieve. And when that is not achieved or when negotiations break down towards that phase two deal, what's going to happen? That's a big question mark. It's a world of great uncertainty, but the two of you have really helped to clarify what are some of the big issues we need to be looking at going forward in the relationship between the United States and China. So I want to thank you, Alex Koff. And Alex, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And Ed Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. That was my conversation with Alexander Koff and Ed Wilson of Venable LLP, talking about the new Cold War between the U.S. and China. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.